to all you Oklahomans who are interested in getting backstage with some really fascinating people. Welcome to Pepper's Podcast. It's Pepper with Pepper's Podcast. And tonight's guest is important to me. Every once in a while, the universe extends its hand and offers someone special in your life. David Pardue is exactly that to me. Everybody meet David Pardue. I was born in Bristol, Virginia on the Tennessee, Virginia uh, border uh, in the state hospital, which was about 30 yards north of the Tennessee border in Bristol, Virginia. And are you an only child? No, I, uh, I am the second. Uh, I have an older sister who, who died a few years ago, Ellen. And then I have a younger sister, Debbie. Debbie lives in Richmond and she's about seven years younger than I am. But I was the king because I was the only boy. That's exactly right. And tell me about uh, Bristol. Um, okay. What, what was the town like? Bristol is, uh, is a town of 20,000 people or so. It's called the Tri-Cities area, Bristol, Kingsport, and Johnson City. So it's an industrialized area. Uh, Kingsport had uh, two big um, um, industries. One is Mead, which is a paper pulp manufacturing company. And the other is the Eastman Kodak Company. Uh, Bristol, uh, on the Virginia side, is steeped in uh, Southern history. Um, it's a, and uh, just north of it is a town called Abingdon, and north of it is a town called Roanoke. So these are really old, old Virginia towns. Virginia, of course, was uh, the heart of the Confederacy, and uh, um, the third city is Johnson City, and it's in a it's a prettier city because it's in uh, some uh, gently sloping older mountains and it's also where East Tennessee State University is. Nice. Uh, but uh, so my parents, uh, my mother was born just north of Bristol. My dad was born just west in Kentucky. What did, you, what did your parents do? My dad was in the army and my mother, uh, uh, didn't do anything except when he went to uh, Germany in World War II, he, she and her sister, Shirley, Aunt Shirley, uh, went up to Detroit to get a better paying job where they were paying a lot of money where they manufactured tanks and stuff. But she basically stayed at home and, and took care of all of the societal needs that accompanies an officer in the United States Army. And so how long did you live in Bristol? Well, I lived there for just a couple of years before uh, we moved to Texas, and then we moved to uh, Oklahoma, my dad being in the Army. Uh, so he gets back from World War II, uh, and uh, I can tell you about that later. It's a pretty interesting story. Uh, can, I, I'd love to hear about it now, David. No time like the present. Here's my dad. He's this good-looking guy. Uh, he's the youngest of four boys, Harold, Gerald, Willard, and Wallace. <laughs> okay, so four boys. He's Wallace. These are all pretty smart kids. Uh, 
Uh, their dad was Leonard Garfield. Their mother was Abigail Davidson. I, that's where I got the name David. Okay. So, uh, Leonard Garfield and Abigail Davidson get married, and the, Leonard Garfield partied and Abigail Davidson get married. And they had these four kids, these four boys. And as they grow up, Harold becomes the manager of that Eastman Kodak plant in Kingsport. He's a smart guy. That's a big deal. Yes. Yeah, Gerald becomes a pretty famous meteorologist specializing in hurricanes and tropical storms in Miami. Uh, Willard uh, didn't go to college. Uh, he became uh, a line worker uh, at the Eastman Kodak uh, shop, uh, uh, an intellectual guy that just graduated from high school, uh, uh, well-read. Looked just like my dad. Uh, they ran the streets of Kingsport and were well known. Uh, well known, okay. And then my dad, the youngest. So he is, uh, World War II is going on and, and uh, he either gets drafted. He was down in Miami looking around, hanging and, around. And he gets drafted or maybe he joined, but his mother called him and said, hey, I got something in the mail for you. So he's now in the army and they quickly put him into officer candidate school. Uh, he goes through it and, uh, and then he shipped to Germany. And by the, from the time he was uh, drafted until he became uh, a captain in the army, it took him 18 months. And he used to brag that that was the fastest anybody ever made captain. That he, is amazing. But he and, and so your dad is over in Germany. What time period is he in Germany? I know it's World War II, but what years? It would be the Battle of the Bulge, 1944, 1945. So he was a battery commander uh, at the age of uh, 22. Kid, just a kid. Through World War II, uh, he's then assigned to Italy where he becomes a military governor for a while. And then after that rotation, he comes back to the United States. Uh, and then nine months later, I'm born. And then also all these different places like uh, Texas and Fort Sill, Oklahoma, and then up to Idaho, where he has some kind of a, a deal with the Idaho National Guard. Then he goes, and then we go back to Virginia where, and then he goes to Korea to, for the Korean War. Uh, and we stay in Bristol and hang around mainly with uh, uh, Aunt Shirley's kids and Ellen and I. And then uh, when the Korean War is about to end, um, uh, we travel to Seattle, get on this little tiny passenger ship and somehow or another, it makes its way all the way across the Pacific Ocean to Tokyo. And we How went, old are you when this happens? How old are you? I was, I was in the first and second grade uh, in Japan. So we lived in Japan for two years. And then we go back to Kansas. Oh, by the way, while we're in Tokyo, my little sister gets born. In Tokyo? Yeah, in Tokyo. But it's a... You know, it was a complete and unconditional surrender, just like just like Germany. And so the United States presence in Japan was everywhere. 
just like Germany. So there was nothing that the Japanese had the right to do anything unless they asked us first. And so you're in Tokyo as a first, second grader. Um, were you schooled on base? Yeah, American bases. It was all set up. Uh, these guys knew how to take control and they built up this, these nice uh, uh, schools and commissaries and living quarters. Uh, we had a maid, Michiko. <laughs> I'll never forget her. Did you make, when you left um, Japan, did you in contact with her? No, I don't know that I did. Maybe they did. I remember my dad came home one, one night uh, and the next morning I looked out the window and there was a green motor scooter. And uh, he told me that he won it playing poker. And then two weeks later, it was gone, and my mother had a new mink stole. That makes sense. That adds up. We go to Kansas, and there's this uh, uh, graduate school kind of like deal for the Army in Kansas. So we're there for a year. We get our first TV. That would be 1955. Then we go to Northern Virginia, where he is assigned to the Pentagon. Okay. We lived there for four years. I can stop to introduce you to David Abbott right now. I'm going to tell you about David Abbott. Yes. David Abbott had an influence in my life. David Abbott was two years older than I was, and he had uh, he wore he used Brill cream in his thick black hair, and he smoked Marlboros, and he put them. He rolled up his T-shirt and put him in there. So he's 12, okay? Well, David had a, um, a soapbox derby racing car. You know what those are? Yes, for sure. Uh, he says, hey, do you want to ride with me? And I said, sure. And so he built uh, a platform just big enough for me to sit on on the right side. And we rode around town. But pretty soon, the left front wheel came off. But amazingly, it didn't crash because it only had three wheels. Then the brakes went out. But amazingly, we could still shoot through intersections. Uh, anyway, David, uh, so I ended up uh, getting into motorcycles and sports cars. And because I, of the soapbox derby guard. David Abbott. Now moving forward, we lived in Virginia for four years. Then we went to Germany. Okay, where in Germany? Yeah, Heidelberg, Germany. Okay. Uh, that would be 61, and the U.S. Army was gigantic in Germany because it was in the midst of the Cold War. So they had this deal. We moved up to Hanau. My dad was a battalion commander. And David, just out of curiosity, how did you guys get from Virginia over to Germany? Okay, we uh, went on a ship, just a passenger ship, and, and the whole family? Yeah, the whole family went on a passenger ship, and we we docked in uh, La Havre. So is that a five-day? No, uh, coming back, it was five. This was a slow ship. <laughs> so tell me, I mean, this is amazing, something that I, my generation would never experience. What was it like on the ship? I mean, was it, tell, tell me about getting there. Okay, well, the ship, uh, um, 
it was pretty small ship, but uh, it was a medium-sized ship, a lot better than the ship that we took to Japan uh, in uh, 51. So this is 10 years later or so. And so it's just a cruise liner, uh, kind of minimum. Uh, I'll tell you about the SS United States, the one we came back on was a lot nicer ship. But anyway, it's a 12-day cruise. And, and I remember crossing the Gulf Stream, which is, uh, uh, which is a warm body of water like a river that runs from the Gulf of Mexico up to England, which makes England foggy. I remember crossing that. And I don't remember a whole lot about that trip, but we did go to Heidelberg and, and uh, it's a gigantic military installation. It's headquarters Europe for this huge, huge uh, US Army there that we just dominated uh, uh, Europe. Uh, Supreme headquarters, Allied Forces Europe was in Paris, US Army's in Heidelberg. But anyway, we go to Hanau, which was a big military. Oh, the other was headquarters. This is troops. Okay. So my dad's a, an artillery battalion commander. And the thing I remember most about that was the Cuban Missile Crisis. So the Cuban Missile Crisis was when Khrushchev is at the United Nations and he takes, Khrushchev was the premier of Russia and he takes his shoe off and, and slams his shoe up and down on the podium and says, we will bury you to the United States. This was a famous speech of his. And shortly after that, he starts sending missiles to Cuba. And uh, Kennedy, the president, puts up the, the blockade. And at this time, here we are in Hanau, all that's going on. My dad disappears. And he's gone for two weeks. And we are allowed to have one footlocker with our personal belongings at our front door. And each of us had to get out our dog tag and wear them. And, and how old are you? I am in the 10th grade now. Okay, so you're 15, 16? Yeah, so he is set up with his nuclear howitzer battalion on the East German, West German border, waiting for somebody to say, we're going to war. So anyway, he comes back after two weeks and tells me that's where he was. That is unbelievable. Yeah, so I go to Frankfurt High School and uh, as a 10th grader. Okay, so you're in Frankfurt, Germany? Well, the high school, I'm in a kind of a long, I'm, I'm a 40 minute bus ride from Frankfurt. Okay. Frankfurt still a pretty decimated city, but it's, uh, it's a big army uh, location for us. So anyway, that's where I go to 10th grade. Uh, and then when we get out of Hanau, that was a one year tour. We go back to Virginia, and my dad uh, goes to a postgraduate college of the armed forces, uh, and it's a pretty neat deal. And uh, he also, George Washington University was also part of this, and he was able to get his uh, MBA at George Washington while he was there. That's amazing. It was. So then we go off to Lawton, Oklahoma. 
Okay. So you come Virginia to Lawton. What year are you looking at? Now, in the 11th grade, I go to the W.T. Woodson High School in Virginia. You're not allowed to have a car. You're not allowed to wear jeans. Your shirts have to have collars on them. You ride the bus to and from school, and you better study a lot. It's a very <laughs> difficult public school. I go to Lawton, and guess what? Day and night. <laughs> Cars. And here's an important thing that you're going to ask me later on. What was so neat about Oklahoma? Well, it was wide open spaces and friendly faces. I love it. So um, you're a junior in high school in Lawton, Oklahoma, coming from the East Coast. You've pretty much traveled the world as a young boy. Um, what is high school like in Lawton? I mean, what? Well, high school in Lawton, now I'm a senior now. Okay. I'm a senior at Lawton High School, and uh, <clears throat> the girls were really pretty. And how many people are in your high school, like in your class? 700. Now, you got to remember, let me stop for a second and tell you something. I go to 10 schools in 11 years. I didn't really have an opportunity to make very many friends because we always moved. But that's just- Do you look at that? Do you look back at going to that many different schools as an asset? Or do you wish it would have been different? Well, the, uh, I wish it would have been a little bit different because when I was in Virginia, fourth, fifth, sixth, and seventh, that was two different schools. I did have a lot of friends, uh, but Heidelberg, you don't get a chance. Hannah, you don't get a chance. W.T. Woodson High School, Virginia, you don't get a chance. I was in a lot, and I was in Lawton for one year, and then went to OU. So there's pluses and minuses, but we were adaptive. So I'd say overall, it was an asset. So do you think going to all the different schools developed your personality to allow you to get to know people easier? Or did it um, create more of a standoffish uh, personality? Well, probably a little bit of both, I would say. Uh, um, I didn't mind um, moving into the new town all that much because I was so used to it. But, uh, and a lot of the people that I was with, they were also uh, military kids. So, but it probably, it, you know, it probably would have been nice to have uh, uh, grown up uh, with some friends. And I've heard a lot of people say, I can't wait to get out of this town. I've been living here all my life. Right. You so I had a pretty good education. A, a culturally diverse education. Uh, I uh, read a lot and stuff like that. Um, and then I go off to uh, uh, OU. Uh, so. And, and so you go straight from your senior year at Lawton to OU. What yes. year are you starting OU? Okay, that would be uh, uh, the fall of 65. What were the 60s like? as a college student in Oklahoma? Well, the first three years were uh, pretty normal. OU is a huge fraternity school and I was not in a fraternity. Uh, uh, and OU had overbuilt their dormitories. So they required anybody under 24 to live in a dorm. Okay. So it was a dormitory life, but uh, I got to know a lot of, a lot of people in the classrooms, but 
now the war now Vietnam War starting to pick up and we're starting to get some protests and at Kent Staves, a famous deal where the National Guard shot and killed some students who were demonstrating and it was getting to be a pretty, uh, pretty uh, anti-war environment uh, at OU, but for the most part, it was still going to college. I was getting a degree in political science and an undergrad and a minor in history and uh, working my way through it and having friends and so, so it's the mid '60s. You're at OU. Um, when you're at school, do you have a vehicle? Do you walk? Do you take a bike? What, what's your, what is a day like in the '60s at OU? Okay, so uh, uh, the first after my freshman year of college, I didn't have a, I didn't have a, a car as a freshman. So I go on the wheat harvest, uh, and. Uh, and you make a dollar forty an hour if you're a truck driver, and a dollar. And this is this is a summertime gig, wheat yeah. harvest, and yeah. you just start in Oklahoma, move north. Yeah, moved all the way up to the Canadian border, and, and got back to OU the day before class started. <laughs> Had a great tan. And so, um, how did you find a job as a wheat harvester? I, I, the the summer uh, that I got to Lawton, I, I uh, got a job cutting wheat for uh, a guy for 10 days. And uh, I exaggerated my skills to this really big time custom cutter fighting guy. And uh, he went ahead and, and hired me, even though he could see I wasn't really all that good at it. <laughs> but I got better. But anyway, and so when you start this custom cutting job, um, David, how many people are on your crew? Where did you sleep? How did you travel? This is great. There were eight on the crew. Um, uh, the boss and his wife had one really nice uh, Airstream trailer. And then um, his only daughter, really cute girl, about my age, couldn't get anywhere close to her. <laughs> uh, she came with us and probably hated every minute of it. But anyway, he had a real nice, real nice uh, cook trailer. We had great meals. And then we had the trailer where the bunkhouse, the bunkhouse had a really good shower for the eight of us. Uh, if you were the first one to take a shower. Ran out of hot water. Ran out of hot water. But anyway, and, a lot of cold. And so you spend a summertime living out of the airstreams with a crew of eight, starting off in Oklahoma, ending up on the Canadian border. Yeah. Cutting's done. How do you take the airstreams back to Oklahoma, get back a day before school starts? Yeah, well, you what you do is you load your combines up on the on, on each of the four trucks and you uh, winch them together with these big chains and haul down the road and drive and drive and drive until you finally get there. <laughs> Forever. Yeah, so anyway, I come back and now I'm a sophomore at OU. But- I have $1,000 and I bought an MGA. Nice. Now I have a car. Okay, is this your first car? First car, yeah. And tell us about the MGA. What color? It was, it was a baby blue MGA, and 
And to start it, this is interesting, you, you pulled out uh, this uh, button. And uh, you could pull it out halfway, or you could pull it out all the way. Now, I pulled it out halfway, thinking that I pulled it out all the way. Okay. Well, if you pull it out all the way, you engage the choke, and it starts real fast. If you pull it out halfway, you engage the throttle, and it doesn't do anything. <laughs> so I finally figured that out, and uh, after walking. Uh, but anyway, I got the car started, and then... Uh, uh, the last words I ever said driving that car was, Sonia, watch me take this corner. Watch what happens. I had a wreck. And so anyway, I sold that and bought my dad's uh, Volkswagen. Uh, and that was my car until halfway through law school. Okay, so uh, undergrad OU political science. What's a couple of your favorite memories at OU? Probably um, um, my second, probably my third year of law school, uh, I, uh, I got together with three other guys that we shared an interest in theology and philosophy. And the other three guys were real smart. And uh, so we read and talked uh, a lot about a lot of books and a lot of thoughts uh, and observations that we had. And it was a really great time in my life uh, hanging around with these guys. Do you still maintain communication with them? No, I don't. I don't, uh, I don't. One of them moved back to uh, Pennsylvania and uh, Ray uh, lives down in Norman, but I haven't uh, seen him in a while. I don't know why, but they were, it was a great influence. It was a, it was a good time to, uh, for me and for them. And that, uh, 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 those were just really good memories. Uh, and I, I vaguely remember us talking in the past that you had a house off campus at one time in yeah. law school. Yeah. That was, that was, <laughs> yeah, we used to like to sit up on top of the roof uh, sun tanning and cars would be indignant that we would do that <laughs> uh, and honk their horns and stuff like that and uh, um, so um, the police uh, came by and uh, found some plants in the backyard okay and they arrested us and then they dismissed the charges um, the charges was growing marijuana, but they dismissed them. They dismissed that. Is that because you're lawyering or? Yes, it was because of the lawyer I hired. Yes, for sure. But anyway, and I think the judge and the DA did not want to prosecute these college students for the theory that we were cultivating marijuana in our backyard. I love it. So I think they all got together in the back room and figured out a way to get it dismissed. Figured out a way to let you guys go. If they needed to. It would, it would have been a travesty. That's exactly right. So you graduate law school. Um, literally, the sky's the limit. What do you do? I joined VISTA, Volunteers in Service to America. And so... And what, uh, 
What, what kind of law is that? What I mean, peace corps. Okay. Yeah. So we go. So we have a training session down in Dallas, and for two weeks we're down at the SMU campus, and these Vista uh, guys uh, train us to become Vista volunteers. Uh, and and that's when I first started to realize that I might have a hidden talent somewhere. And what is the talent? Well, it I'm not sure, um, but there's like 15 tables of eight on a table. And so each table elected a leader. Uh, and then, so now there's 15 leaders. And then uh, those were split into four. And so now there's four or six leaders. And then they elect two. And then those two elect one. And I was this, I was the end up being the leader for Vista for that deal. And that was kind of an interesting thing for me to, to realize that um, I was a little bit influential. <laughs> I'm not sure why, but anyway, it was a very interesting moment in my life uh, because people were listening to me and appreciating my observations, my outlook, um, where I thought Vista was and where I thought Vista should be. Let me go back to one other time in my life, okay? Please. That, um, and part of it's pretty funny. Uh, it's, it takes place at St. Paul's Episcopal Church in the 11th grade. And, I, and I'll connect it to that Vista experience. So it's uh, in the basement of the church and there's the teenagers are, have Sunday school or something. But across the table from me is this really cute girl. And she is making a paper football. It looks like a triangle, real compact. And what you do is, is you flip it, and the other guy holds his fingers up. Well, I wasn't paying too much attention, but Valerie flipped it at me and hit me right in the chest. <laughs> so I asked Valerie out. Well, that's what you do. Yes. So Valerie says, listen, uh, you only get the car two times a month. Why don't you ask your dad if you can uh, take it to Wednesday night Bible study? Okay. okay. And so my dad knew I was really disinterested in Valerie, but he said, okay, you can go ahead and do it. And so we go to this, um, I'm interested in Valerie mainly, not not uh, Reverend Knight. The right, guy. not the Bible study, yes. Bible study, but Valerie. Well, Reverend Knight is teaching something, and I don't remember what it was, but he, he says something and I responded. And then he asked me what I meant. And then I started telling him. And this is all, I was just thinking, feeling. And he starts listening and listening. And then the class breaks up and we go to church. 
next Sunday, my dad and I are the only ones that go. I don't know where my mother was or Ellen or Debbie. But anyway, Reverend Knight is giving a sermon. And halfway through the sermon, it sounds really familiar to me. And I turned to my dad and I whispered, I said, hey, that's what we were talking about. And after the church service, Reverend Knight came up to me. He comes down into the sanctuary instead of greeting people as they come out. And he said, did that sound familiar to you? And I said, yes. He says, well, I based my sermon on what you told me. During the Bible study. That's right. I based my sermon on what you told me, David. That was pretty interesting to me. For sure. Not a student of the Bible. And do you remember what you told him? No, I don't. I just remember, I don't. I, I just remember but, having this dialogue and he's, and he quits asking me questions. He just starts listening to me. So I wish I could tell you what it was we were talking about, but it became the basis of a sermon that he gave. And that was very poignant moment for a 16 year old kid. For sure it is. So anyway, there was a little bit of a, an awareness that I had, and it might've been similar to the awareness that I had after I graduated from law school and I'm down at Vista. And let me ask you this, before this event, this pivotal moment when you're 16, were you a spiritual person? Were you, uh, I know that you were raised in a church, yeah. you went to church, but did you have a connection or is that the first moment where you felt like there was something more? No, I'll tell you, I had, I had somewhat of a connection, but I didn't sit down and study the Bible, uh, really. Uh, I was uh, an acolyte, uh, and I enjoyed uh, being up with the priest while he's uh, helping him do communion. I liked wearing the acolyte's robe. Uh, I, 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 it was meaningful for me to be a part of a church service. It was it meaningful because of your relationship with God or relationship with the um, community within the church? Okay, well, let me drop back, okay? We're going to, okay. So when I'm 12, and I read this book called The Robe. And it's the story of the, of the robe that Christ wore. And it was made out of, it had no seams. And it was, made, and it was a real beautiful robe. It's a famous book. Uh, and it's, a, it's an adult book, but I mean, it wasn't hard to read. And when I read that book, uh, I had an awareness of who Christ was. For the Just first time. That's the first time, yeah, that's the first time. So I had that awareness, but uh, now we jump forward uh, until I'm 16. So there really wasn't much other than I would go to church, I would take communion, I would be confirmed, 
I was an acolyte, but it wasn't like I dove into uh, the study of Christianity. So anyway, that's just some of the meaningful things that happened to me between those times. And then uh, Vista, that's the third thing. Yeah, that's right. That's the third thing. It was pretty, that was a well, pretty- uh, And you use the word poignant, yeah, that's, um, that's which right. it's an unusual word for me to hear um but it it shows its impact on your life and yeah. it's almost a revelation yeah and so what what do you do with vista what what how how did you incorporate your poignant moments into your path forward um uh, well when i when i go to new mexico uh i'm i'm a lawyer uh, I'd passed the bar, but I wasn't a lawyer in New Mexico, but they sent me out to a small town uh, in New Mexico. And uh, that um, really didn't take off the way I wanted it to. Uh, I really didn't have the uh, connections. I really didn't make the connections with the people in that small town that I wanted to. And just for atmospherics, David, um, you drive the Buick that you bought from your dad to New Mexico. How do you get out to New Mexico? It was a Volkswagen, and I drove my Volkswagen. And Suzanne, uh, uh, who I had uh, just married, uh, stayed in Norman to get her master's degree in education. Now, there's one funny thing about some of the people I did meet in this town called Manzano. Manzano was kind of famous for being a refuge for thieves. Okay. You fit in perfect. Fit in perfectly. <laughs> so uh, I rented this uh, really pretty big house with no plumbing. But anyway, uh, they said there's a lot of thieves here and they're going to come by and introduce yourself, themselves to you. And so they do, and they come over, and they say, hey, let's go over to uh, the next big town and uh, have a few beers. So we do, and I come back, and uh, uh, somebody had broken into my house, and I had a big record collection. Not anymore. They spread out all of my records <laughs> across the living room. And I searched and searched and found the one record that they stole. It was from the Rolling Stones and it was called Sticky Fingers. Are you serious? <laughs> the they stole. That was, they went through your entire record collection looking for one. Just saying, welcome to Manzano. That's right. Welcome. So anyway, um, to OU and uh, start practicing law. Okay, so quick funny side note, my uncle who I was very close with lived in New Orleans and he had a record collection um, and someone broke into his apartment one night and stole his record player. And he came home and he was like, my record player, this is horrible. And said that um, the next day they broke in again and then took his records. So it took him two trips. They broke in the first night, took his record player, second night took all his records. 
Um, okay, so behind every great man, David, is a woman. You said that you had just married Suzanne, but we don't know anything about her. Okay. Where do you guys meet? What's the story? Okay, Suzanne, this is a good, this is a good funny story. Suzanne is 22 and I'm 24. She had just moved to Oklahoma from Wisconsin. Okay. She's a tall, well-developed, good-looking co-ed. And I'm in a bar having a beer with my buddies. And this is this is on campus at OU. Campus. This is on campus. What's the name of the bar? Fontanelli's. Fontanelli's. Okay. It's a real lively bar. Please don't tell me you took a little paper football and flicked it at her. This is I should have. <laughs> she walked up to me and sat down. She did. And I'm going, whoa. And, she, and I don't know, remember the conversation, but uh, I said, what's your name? She says, Suzanne. And she says, what's your name? And I said, David. And then I says, hey, you want to do something? She says, sure. I said, okay, let's go out. And she says, okay, what? And I says, I'll meet you in the study hall of the library uh, and we'll study. Well, that isn't what she had in mind. That... That might be the worst first date proposal that I've ever heard. <laughs> but but impressed her was I wore a sweater. Now this was when I didn't, I, I was pretty laid back in the way I dressed. So I wore she remembers this. She says, You wore a sweater like you buy at Harold's. Yeah. Anyway, so we that's where we met, and that was in November. And I married her April 29th. What year? 1972. 1972. So, so it took us four months to figure this out. Four months and you guys commit, married in 72. Uh -huh. You're back in Oklahoma. Yeah, uh, now I'm back in Oklahoma to start practicing law. And what, what do you got? You guys uh, moved to Oklahoma City? Well, we started off in Norman. I come back, and one of those four guys, three guys I was talking about, John. Yes. Paul John says, John, I need to uh, move in with you for a while. He says, absolutely not. No. And, and I said, I don't. I said, John, we don't have a choice about this. I have to move back. He says, well, you can move anywhere you want except here. <laughs> that doesn't seem very inviting. And I said, well, listen, I'll, I won't be here long. And after a lot of back and forth, he finally relented and let me move in. So then I had to get a case. Well, hold on. Is Suzanne moving in with you? No, she was, uh, she had, she was, we could, there was not enough room for, I don't know what the deal was, but okay. she was, she had to stay where she was or something. I mean, we were happily married i can't remember that's a good question i'll have to ask her okay so but you guys are happily married she's finishing up her master's you move in with john and now you're looking for a client so here's what i do okay Get on my bike and i ride to the courthouse now when you say bike is this a motorcycle or a bicycle bicycle my 10 speed <laughs> I ride my bike to the courthouse and I go up to the second floor to the court clerk and I say, I want to sign up for uh, indigent defense for criminals. 
So if you can't afford a lawyer, the judge will appoint one. And she says, well, are you a member of the county bar? And I go, no. She says, well, then too bad. Now, by the way, I hadn't shaved in a while. Okay. And well, you're, you're hanging out with all the uh, criminals in New Mexico, so you have to fit in. Fit in. And I hadn't had a haircut in a while. And I didn't look the part. Okay. So she says, well, too bad for you. You can't be, you can't do this. You got to get into the county bar. And I said, how do I do that? Well, you got to go ask this guy who's the president of the county bars across the street. His name's Jim. So I go over there and he was real, real not interested in me joining the bar. He says, Dave. And based on appearance or? Well, the appearance. That was it. I said, how come? He says, well, for starters, it costs five bucks. I said, okay, I don't have five bucks. So I get on my bike. I ride back. I beg John for five bucks. He gives me the five bucks. I ride back, give the five bucks to Jim. Jim gives me a temporary card. I take it back across the street to the courthouse, give her my new membership, and I said, okay, appoint me a case. And she says, well, you're 30th on the list. Okay. Okay. Well, she says, well, give me a phone number. So I give her John's phone number. Okay. Um, and then so, uh, you don't have an office. You're, you're, I don't have an office. You have a, you have a 10 speed and a briefcase. I don't have a briefcase. Okay. You got a 10 speed. <laughs> I yeah I I I uh, I ride back uh, and as I pull up into the front yard, John opens the door and he says, "Hey, there's somebody from the court clerk's office that's on the line." So she says, uh, "Come back out. We got a case for you." So I ride back and I get uh, a case. Uh, and the guy's name's Harry. And I go up to see Harry in the jail. The jailer was real suspicious to let me in because I didn't look the part. But you had the county bar card, like, you know, official. So I said, I said, Harry, how come you're in jail? And he says, well, they, um, I, I went to test drive a car from Allen Sawyer Chevrolet and they picked me up. And I said, well, where'd they pick you up? And he said, Albuquerque. Albuquerque, New Mexico. My first case. And so uh, uh, the judge gave me uh, $500 to represent the guy. And there, there you go. There's my legal career got started. On a case where a guy took a joy ride on a demo car out to Albuquerque, New Mexico. And I ended up representing Harry for the next 20 years. He became a pretty successful guy. Well, uh, is, uh, that's amazing. Yeah. And so um, you're in Norman and you're doing criminal defense work, but is that your calling or are you always envisioning yourself doing something different? College kids and others were every once in a while getting arrested for possession of marijuana. Okay. You know how to get those charges dismissed. They would typically get arrested uh, 
while they're in their car. And the judge was really good about making sure that the police had probable cause to pull him over and make the search. And it was pretty easy to convince this judge that it was an illegal search. Okay. So I got a few guys off and I started to build a little bit of practice, but then I moved up to Oklahoma City uh, and get a part-time job in a warehouse. And uh, my wife, Suzanne, gets a part-time job that lasted two days while she's waiting to get her teacher certificate working for Dial Finance. Okay, so when you guys move to the city, where do you guys get an apartment? Oh, we got a house uh, two blocks north of uh, the Red Dog Saloon on 10th Street. On 10th Street. So it was a, it was a $50 a month house. Not much of a house. And when you guys moved, David, this is 1973, 74. What all do you have in your car that you moved from Norman to the, okay, the house on 10th? That I bought uh, to get married in. And uh, I bought a AT&T cable spool as my desk. And I, my dad sent me $100 to buy a typewriter. And so you office out of the house? Out of my house, yeah, out of my house. And you have an AT&T wire spool for a desk, a typewriter. What else? Phone? A phone. Yeah, I had a landline. So what else? Remember your phone number? 525-0218. That's amazing. Um, so you have a wife. She's working part-time. You start off your own practice. Yeah. And you're officing out of the house. Um, looking back, was that a hard time? Or looking back, was that a blessing? Uh, I don't remember it being hard because uh, although I had a part-time job working in the liquor warehouse, Byron's? No, it was the it was Central Liquor Warehouse. Okay. It was on where was it located? It was on, it was on like Southwest Fifth. And so, did you ride your bike? Yeah, rode my bike down there to work. Uh, and that was from 5.30 in the morning to 9.30 in the morning. Then I came back and waited for the phone to ring. My second case was a waiver divorce. She was hoping to take it out in trade, but I needed the money and I was married. Yeah, that's a hard part. Yes, I understand. So that was my second case. And then uh, law school friends that got real jobs uh, would refer me a case or two. And, and then I started, uh, uh, I saw an ad in the paper where I could share space in an office. And I did that. And then I started working in the all black district of Oklahoma City. And I did civil rights cases. Where was the all-black area of the city that you worked? 1916 Northeastern. A storefront. 19th, okay, yeah. Converted 
uh, into uh, a law office. I practiced law with a black lawyer named Henry Floyd. Henry Floyd looked like Omar Sharif. Really? Yeah, he uh, did not like white people. He'd love to sue them. And so and he, he, because I would sue white people for uh, the Civil Rights Act violation. So I did that for a while. And, and so um, when you officed on Eastern, you're still with a typewriter, still with a hardline phone. Now, by now, he's got a secretary. Whoa, okay. Henry's got a secretary, and that becomes my secretary. So I'm sharing space and a secretary with Henry, and I'm getting some business from Henry and from other people. And uh, the first year I practiced law, I made $1,200. 1200 in a year of practice. In a year. Second year, I made 3600 Okay. So I was off to the races. You're scaling. <laughs> but then I start, I start moving downtown with other guys that had established practices, and, and I would get cases they didn't like or didn't want. And, and so, then, David, uh, in the in the mid seventies, when you're doing civil rights cases, yeah, um, how did the judiciary view those cases? Do you feel like that they um, were able to? Do, do you feel like they were well received, or were they shunned, or was it a environment to where that was a hard practice? Well, uh, you really had to spend a lot of time studying. Uh, what the Civil Rights Act said and the Equal Employment Opportunity Act, that's that's where you uh, don't hire a black person because they're a black and they're a white person. Now, those cases, they were kind of easy in a way because the statute's right there. And if you've got your facts, they'll say, oh, no, it had nothing to do with this person being black. But anyway, so the judges really... Uh, followed the law and I won a few cases and most of them got settled. Uh, but, uh, and I got people's, you know, the black community would hire me on a few things. And it was, uh, it was pretty, uh, it was a very interesting. Uh, when I was a senior in law school, I did uh, volunteer work for legal aid uh, for free. And I, and I did it in Eastern Oklahoma city uh work for a guy named albert alexander who's a black lawyer and when the when when his class he's a legal aid lawyer and so when the people that came in needing legal aid assistance would come in uh they would either see me or they'd see albert and i'd say i am not a lawyer and they'd say you're close enough <laughs> i'll take you i'll take you yes <laughs> much fun i had so much fun because i'd call up the other lawyer that was hassling them and i'd say hey i'm a i'm in law school and i'm and i'm here on behalf of so and so and and did you really do this did, did you tell me come tell me tell me um so you know i i i'm a lawyer and i do injury cases and i really feel like i'm in that arena because i have a passion for people 
and I really feel like I'm doing a service and helping people who, in my opinion, would otherwise be taken advantage of by big entities. Yeah. You are doing civil rights cases. Um, do you feel like you ended up doing civil rights cases because of your connection spiritually, because of a passion for fairness? What pushed you into that? Because it was interesting. Yeah. What, what pushed you into the civil rights arena? It was so obvious to me that these people were being mistreated and they didn't deserve it. And you wanted to fix it. And I was going to fix it. And I liked them. And I think that's amazing. They trusted me. They figured that I could, they figured that I was maybe their last shot. And you were. And I was, and it was really fun to march into that federal courthouse and say, hey, we got to fix this. So anyway. And so, David, you do civil rights cases for um, how, how long? A decade? Oh, no, probably uh, maybe eight years. Uh, the last civil rights case I probably had was I was representing a woman named Ruby Kozad. And she was a real smart woman that was discriminated against by the uh, Indian Health Service where she worked. She was from Anadarko. Uh, and I lost that case. Um, and I hated that I lost it. But uh, the judge uh, didn't try cases. And so when we go in for the trial, he hears opening statements from both sides. The uh, U.S. Attorney's Office represented the Indian Health Service. And I represented Ruby. And I didn't get to put on any witnesses, Pepper. Uh, he ruled on our opening statements. Their defense was that they had a job for her in North Dakota. All she had to do is move to North Dakota. And I says, no way. This job that she was turned down for was in Oklahoma City. Right. And the judge says, well, you, Dave, you can't move the mountain to Muhammad. Muhammad has to go to the mountain, so you lose. So that was probably one of the, that was probably the last civil rights case that I handled. Uh, so in the meantime, I'm starting to do other things. Uh, I get uh, an oil and gas case. Uh, I get a construction case. Um, a, uh, I move into another uh, office with eight lawyers and there's this uh, um, well before that uh, a good friend of mine graduates from law school and he goes to work for an oil company owned by a company called Hodges Trucking Company. Sure, Hodges Trucking. Big trucking company and Bill said hey Dave Hodges Trucking Company has a small claims case. You want it? This would be 78 I said, sure. And so they send me a small claims case, $1,500. And then they send me another one. And then, and then the next time was a little bit bigger. And then uh, Hodges Trucking Company uh, has uh, somebody go bankrupt on them. And they send that case to me. And so uh, I go to the bankruptcy court and Hodges Trucking Company sends their 
company representative to be with me for this hearing. This person was a knockout. <laughs> Whoa. You seem to like naturally attract knockouts. It's unbelievable. Gorgeous. And she was so well-dressed. Uh, and <laughs> so it was pretty easy to, to uh, get the attention of everybody. One guy over in the corner, I walked over to him and I said, who do you represent? He says, I don't represent anybody. I'm just... <laughs> I'm here, I work for the company. I said, well, what's the company? And he says, well, it's Baker Hughes. I said, I've heard of them. I said, well, where's your lawyer? He says, oh, he, he couldn't make it. I said, well, that's a dumb thing for him to do. I need to represent you. And he says, you're right. So 35 years later, I just get through settling just now. Baker Hughes. Baker Hughes. That is a career client just oh. out of <laughs> that's a wow. I so, think that's so cool that a big stepping stone and then the next one was I'm in an office with a, a lawyer and he says you know Dave I can't think I can't understand what this guy Paul is saying Paul is a oil guy he says why don't you talk to him see if you can figure it out and Paul is kind of hard to rain in but uh i said well i can figure it out mike and he says well why don't you just do it for him and you go i go okay and so we so paul and i go to see marathon oil marathon oil wants to buy a lease that paul had acquired and so we put together the deal and i said well i know how to do that you didn't. <laughs> I, I studied it. Yes. And and I figured out, and really, there wasn't much to it. Uh, we just sold this lease, and Marathon gave Paul a big bunch of money. And then Paul was able to start buying uh, oil wells uh, at auction. And he stayed with me. And... Uh, until three years ago when he died, he was worth about 90 million. Isn't that amazing? And I did a lot of work for him. And I also started doing a lot of work for uh, uh, Baker Hughes. And then Baker Hughes out of Houston had Houston lawyers and they had clients in Oklahoma. And so I started getting those guys yeah. business. And so that was really kind of how things got going for me. Do you think your accumulation of the clients from referrals from the Houston lawyers, from other companies, comes from work product, comes from a ability to communicate with them, or comes from your ability to just be to have a unique ability to see what the issue is clearly? Uh, it was probably more like this, and I didn't know it at the time, but it was more like um, apparently uh, the clients really trusted me. And the reason why I said that is because um, I represented a client 
and was successful in reversing a case, but then he sued me uh, because the other part of the case that I had nothing to do with, he lost on. And when uh, the lawyer that represented me in the lawsuit, the malpractice case, interviewed an associate that I hired, the associate told that lawyer and the lawyer told me that um, I have never seen somebody, and I'm, it sounds like I'm bragging, but- No, you brag on, you deserve to brag on yourself. I've never met any lawyer that ever cared more for his clients than David. So I think maybe, yeah, I'm above average in figuring things out, but not great, just above average. But the clients always trusted me. I always worked for them. So I, I, all that expensive, you know, uh, I was pretty fair with my fees. Uh, so anyway, I think that's kind of a combination. Now, one of the other things that did a lot to my practice was I represented uh, uh, an electrical subcontractor. Um, and he had a lot of electricians working for him. And I said, Greg, how'd you do this? Uh, how, how do you have 60 electricians working for you? And he said, well, as soon as I got my journeyman's license, and he, I've been doing stuff for him for two or three years. As soon as I got my journeyman's license, I hired two electricians. And I said, did you have enough work for him? He says, well, I don't know. I just hired them. Yeah. Dave, you need to go hire two lawyers. I said, I don't have the work. He says, yes, you do. And so I did. And, and so for the last 25 years, I've always had two lawyers working for me. And you've always kept them busy. Always kept them busy. So anyway, that was a big thing. Uh, that was kind of an eye-opening. Those are some of the eye-opening experiences that moved me along in my practice. Uh, so... Um, you were talking about the first oil and gas cases. That's in the late 70s. What was Oklahoma City like in the late 70s, early 80s, oil booming? Yeah, uh, it was until 1982, and we had this big crash. But my practice wasn't really um, all that involved in... Uh, in uh, the oil practice, like Baker Hughes didn't need me unless the oil company that it serviced went broke. And back then the price of oil was through the roof and they could pay their bills. And so I really wasn't all that involved in it. I do remember July 5th, 1982, when uh, the oil Pins collapsed, Penn Square Bank, Failed. Failed, yeah. And so that wiped out a bunch of the oil and gas business in, uh, in Oklahoma City. I personally don't really think that I was all that uh, adversely impacted uh, by it, but Oklahoma City doesn't even resemble what it does now. When, when, you, when you were living here in Oklahoma City and the crash occurred, was there like a noticeable change in the culture, the atmosphere, the people? 
because Oklahoma City is an oil and gas city. I mean, yeah, it, it was, but I'll tell you, I didn't really uh, know all that much about what was going on there. One of the things I noticed was that uh, uh, they introduced this thing called uh, adjustable rate mortgages, which enabled people to buy houses they fought on a good deal, but they would keep adjusting the rates. Uh, and so you ended up with a 14% mortgage. That was going on in 84, and that ended up being a big national scandal. Uh, that was horrible. Yeah, a horrible deal. But anyway, as far as me going, uh, I was uh, I was spending every nickel that I made. Uh, on what? Oh, I put my kids in uh, a private school, and I realized I was spending a little too much money when a friend of mine walked up and says, Dave, you know who the three best-dressed kids are in Heritage Hall? You're three. No, and he says, you're kids. <laughs> the best. Gosh. That's and not, because I don't have, I wasn't making that much. But so... You uh, have three kids. They're born, uh, all three of them, in the 80s? 76, 80, and 84. Okay. And um, like while you're practicing law, you are, are clearly a family, a spiritual man. Um, I have a daughter who's just literally my whole world. Um, would you, how, how do you feel like Oklahoma city is as a parent for kids growing up? You mean today? No, when your kids were growing up. Uh, uh, it was fine. Uh, as far as I could tell, uh, uh, things were good for them. Uh, um, they had everything they needed and wanted. And, education, uh, fantastic. Yeah, fantastic education. And uh, they had good a really, friends, good, I mean. Yeah, a lot of good friends. They had a really good mother. Uh, I, was, I was not present near enough with them. You regret that? Yeah, I was, I was not, I didn't. I didn't spend enough time with my sons. Uh, it's a big regret of mine. Uh, the, and that's the hardest thing in the world because as a, a father, you have an instinct to provide and in order to provide, it's time consuming. Yeah. And so you go through a period providing, 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 and then you stop and look back and you missed out on some of the relationship focuses. Um, but I've heard, I had lunch with a very successful businessman and that was his regret. Um, you know, he has every asset that you could possibly imagine, but the one thing he doesn't have is time with his kids who have now grown up. Um, that's hard. Yeah. So, you you are transitioning as i understand 
maybe not going full time next year in your legal practice. Still, obviously, want to work. Still, want to be involved. What What do you want to do now? I mean, let let me give you a little basis for my. I look at you as somebody that I take advice from. I look at you as somebody smarter than me. And now you have all this time. How are you going to utilize it? I'm not too concerned about how I'm going to utilize it. Um, I'm going to be decompressing. I'm going to uh, not worry about uh, having uh, too much time on my hands. Uh, my wife keeps telling me that I need to finish the book that I started writing. But it's, it is half done. Half done. It's half done. That's right. Um, but uh, uh, I'm going to be an ordinary person living an ordinary life. Uh, it's a it's a good thing for your listeners to Google an ordinary person living an ordinary life and see what comes up, see what see what that says. Let me tell you about a book, okay? Please. Okay, this book is called uh, the Twelve Steps: Chaos and Order. Okay, Jordan Peterson is this brilliant uh, clinical psychologist. Uh, he teaches at Harvard and McGill, which is the Harvard of Canada. And he is a consultant for major law firms. And he's a really interesting guy. And he wrote that book, Chaos and Order in 12 Steps. And uh, uh, everybody should read this book. One of the things he talks about is um, society and civilization. He explains it like this. He says, when our ancestors uh, survived by hunting, uh, they ate what they killed. Then one day, one of your ancestors decided to give some of it to another family. That was the moment of the beginning of civilization. Uh, and they got me thinking about civilization um, and ci civility. And, and so I wrote down grocery stores, parks, highways and playgrounds. And, and when you go to a grocery store, you will see civility. When you go to a park, you'll see some, you, in other words, what you're gonna see is civil relationships rather than all the stuff that hammers us uh, so much on social media. Uh, so if you'll let me do one thing, please tell you, uh, this guy is pretty funny. Uh, Jordan Peterson's his name. If I can get this to spread. Here it is. Okay, here's the 12 steps, okay? 
Stand up straight with your shoulders back. Fair. Treat yourself like someone you are responsible for helping. Treat yourself like someone you are responsible for helping. Three, make friends with people who want the best for you. Four, compare yourself to who you were yesterday, not to who someone else is today. Do not let your children do anything that makes you dislike them. Now on this one, he says, watch those children and persuade them to always do the right thing. And if you don't do that, by the time they're four, it's too late. Too late. Five, six, set your house in perfect order before you criticize the world. Seven, pursue what is meaningful, not what is expedient. That's very important. That's, uh, that's, that's deferred gratification versus immediate gratification. Sit, uh, the next one is uh, tell the truth or at least don't lie. Next, assume that the person you are listening to might know something you don't. Next, be precise in your speech. Next, do not bother people, do not bother children while they are skateboarding. <laughs> and finally, pet a cat when you encounter one on the street. Now, this guy is really a smart guy, and he teaches you uh, how to convert chaos into order and live beyond yourself. Completely make yourself invisible to yourself. And, and that's how you've lived your life. That's how to do it anyway. Uh, I've read the book at least four times. I so think that's amazing. Watch yourself as you talk. Watch yourself as you act. Look at yourself from outside yourself and see what you're doing. Because you don't know yourself nearly as much as you think you do. So anyway, those are those are some things I wanted to make sure I got I got uh, <clears throat> into our conversation because God is loose in the world. I love that. Um you you've made Oklahoma your home. Yeah. And you could live anywhere on the planet. I mean, you have lived in different places on the planet and you choose here. Yeah, it was it was a pretty easy choice. It was a real it was a real uh uh it was laid back. Uh uh, it was pretty hassle-free. Uh, you could move forward. There were plenty of opportunities. Uh, I liked the people. And like I say, I like blue skies and sunshine and short winters and long summers. And uh, it's easy to get around. Uh, it's uh, The state really feels connected. All parts of the state feel connected to a state which is different than Virginia uh, or other 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 places. So it was real easy for me to stay in Oklahoma, practice law in Oklahoma, and settle down into one place. Um, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you to do this, but I go to you for advice. And I'm curious, what would be your advice 
for a teenager? Uh, I think it's some of those points that uh, uh, that Jordan uh, said, and maybe the most important thing that he said is tell the truth. Uh, no matter what. Tell the truth no matter what. It No matter what, just tell the truth and listen as though the person that's talking to you may know something that you don't know. Those two things are so critical. It will it will create uh, a foundation that will stay with you all your life. Tell the truth and well, assume the person you're talking to knows something you don't know. Yeah, that's an interesting story about the guys that uh, skateboard, but that's it's pretty complicated to get to that that uh, uh, that point but anyway uh, let these guys do stuff let them go uh, don't worry about whether or not they get hurt uh, uh, let them fly let them develop their imagination let them uh, experience uh, uh, what could happen to them if they're not careful you know uh, those kind of things anyway Hey, it's been great talking to you. David, uh, thank you. And I just want to tell you, you are a really great person. That That is heartfelt, and I mean it. Thank, thank you. you for joining us, and uh, we'll talk soon. Okay, take care.